We're eager to give back to the community that's given us so much. Let them know what's happening in this building, what we're trying to do to defeat cancer. For the people who've given so much, uh, we just want to make sure that they understand what's happening, what we're doing. As my wife, who is a writer, will say, you scientists can't talk to people, so we're trying to make it in a way that's approachable for people. I gave wife's kind of tough on you. She's really, she's my toughest critic. But I gave one talk where I, I start off the talk by ta saying, congratulating people for their bravery to come and listen to a scientist for an hour. We don't want people to have to be brave to come and listen to scientists. We want them to be curious and right. for them to learn and to be engaged. At the top of the show, you heard Dr. Brian Drucker. Dr. Drucker's research revolutionized the treatment of a once fatal cancer known as CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, leading to the development of the first drug to target the molecular defect of the cancer while leaving healthy cells unharmed. Thanks to Brian's work, CML is now a manageable condition and not fatal. Night School is a new series of science talks designed to educate, inspire, and entertain, with stories told by night cancer researchers, clinicians, and patients as directed by Brian. We'll learn more about this event just in a moment. We'll also be chatting with Devin Kelly. He's the founder of Oregon Active. The nonprofit provides adventure therapy for those with disabilities and other life-challenging conditions. But first, let's head on over to Dr. Brian Drucker's office at the Knight Cancer Research Building to connect with Oregon's most famous scientist. I'm Gregory Day. This is pdxpodcast.com. Dr. Drucker, it's, it's wonderful to meet you face to face. Well, thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Yes, you're, you're in your corner office here, <laughs> and there's just a wonderful view, great light in this building. We love our new building. Wow, we're so thankful to the state legislature for allocating the funds for this and for everybody stepping up and making this possible. Right, and you just had a presentation, night school, the first one. Yes. Cancer 101? Yes. I was there. It went great. Well, What's we're your feeling? So, we're so glad you could be there. We were really pleased that, uh, that we were able to do this. We're eager to give back to the community that's given us so much. Let them know what, what's happening in this building, what we're trying to do to defeat cancer. And for the people who've given so much, uh, we just want to make sure that they understand what's happening, what we're doing. But we're also, as my wife, who is a writer, will say, you scientists can't talk to people. So we're trying to make it in a way that's approachable for people. I gave one talk where I said... Uh, I gave wife's kind of tough on you. She's really, she's my toughest critic. But I gave one talk where I, I start off the talk by ta saying, congratulating people for their bravery to come and listen to a scientist for an hour. 
We don't want people to have to be brave to come and listen to scientists. We want them to be curious and right. for them to learn and to be engaged. Right. Well, it's transferable. What you're saying is very transferable, I think. We want it to be. We want it to be approachable and for people to come away feeling inspired, educated, and maybe even on an occasion uh, feel entertained. Now, I would like to ask you about uh, the BEAT AML program because there was a huge data set released. Was that your team recently? Yes, that was our team, and it was a huge team. It was 40 or 50 people working on a project over three to five years. The idea is we want to understand what drives the growth of one of the most lethal leukemias, acute myeloid leukemia, AML for short. Right. We've taken patient samples. We've done gene, whole genome sequencing on them. We've tested them against 150 different targeted therapies to see what drugs kill those cells. And we've tried to integrate all that information using our computational team to see what drugs match to what genetic abnormalities that we can then move into the clinic. And we collected 900 samples from 11 different academic medical centers across the country. At least 15 different companies contributed their drugs. We had a team of people that were processing those samples, a team of computationalists to try to decode all this data to make sense of it. So it was a huge, huge team effort. And there was some progress made, right, by our three mutations respond well to a specific medication? Yes. That, one of the early nuggets of information we got out of that was that if you had three different mutations, you were highly sensitive to one particular drug, and we're now going to test that in clinical trials. So how, how soon, how fast is that process going to, going to be? It never, it never goes fast enough, but we hope we'll have that in, in the clinic within the next few months. I'd like to talk a bit about Phil Knight. Yes. Um, how well do you know Phil? Uh, not that well. Does anybody really? I, I, he, has some, <laughs> he has some very close and loyal friends, and that's who he spends his time with. Have you read his book? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say this on tape. I have, I have not read his entire book, but my wife, who's an avid reader, has filled me in on the highlights. Oh, really? Because he is a very shy man. He is. He's it's an entertaining read. He, he is incredibly shy, and that is true. But one of the things that, that always has struck me about, and I read part, the part, one of the parts that I read, was making that transition from, I have a day job, I'm an accountant, yeah. I do some teaching at PSU, and when do you go all in with the shoes you're selling out of the back of your, your car? And when do you make that transition, or when do you, you know, when do you go from playing it safe to, okay, it's ready to move? And to me, that's always interesting about entrepreneurs is, when do you make that shift from this idea, shoestring budget to, okay, now it's time to go all in? Well, he went through some hard times. He sure did. I would like to get back to your presentation because you gave us a bit of a background of your history. You entered the field in 88, 90. You mentioned that oncologists were and are pessimistic, but you're, you're saying that changing. You're part of that. What's been remarkable about this is that when I started out, we were a pretty pessimistic bunch, but it was hard not to be. Most of our patients died, and all we had were really crude tools like chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. Now we have all these targeted therapies that are seeking out cancer specifically and destroying them. We have these immune therapies that are activating the immune system to attack the cancer, and they're working. So we're starting to see success like we've never seen before, and we can start to see a future where cancer isn't 
isn't the, the enemy that it is today. And much like we learned for infectious disease over the last century, where people couldn't imagine that you could actually treat cancer, or sorry, treat infections with antibiotics, yeah. or vaccinate people so they don't get measles. You know, just sort of really simple, really simple kind of approaches. I remember you saying that the average age uh, lifespan in 1900, 100 years ago, was 47. That's absolutely correct. And bacteria or, or infections were, were the most common form of death, yes. something we don't worry about today. There's a video of you out there um, with you presenting a, a, a testimonial from Katie Knudsen. Yes. Very powerful. When yeah. I saw those when I saw those images of her, it was really, it's really emotional. You know, I play that video about once a month, and I get teary every time I see it. It's those braces, okay. I think, those get to you. <laughs> when you see the braces, she's a lot younger than your typical CML patient. She absolutely is. I'm only three percent of leukemias occur in children, so it's extremely rare. She was diagnosed when she was five or six, and she's now a nurse at Dornbecker. What a remarkable story! And. 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. No, I, you know, it's just really powerful images of her dancing and her, she's just a free spirit. She's, yes. you know, a straight A student, valedictorian. You mentioned uh, too in the same video, lung cancer is now the poster child for precision medicine. Yes, it is. And had I started out as working on lung cancer 25 years ago, there wouldn't have been any targets. But now, as Dr. Chris Corliss presented at night school, we've divided lung cancer, which used to be three diseases diagnosed by a pathologist under a microscope. Now we sequence the cancer and there are 50 different types. And that means we have to do that in analytics and then match patients to the right drugs so they get the best outcome. And that's, that's a remarkable advance, both in technology, but also in knowledge of how to manage cancer. You also spoke at Google uh, about three years ago. Yes. The, the title of the, the presentation was Anatomy of a Breakthrough in Targeted Cancer Treatments. Sometimes the answer is right in front of you. This is something you hammered home. Well, I think everybody hammers. You've got to think outside the box to innovate. And when I look at innovation, I look at innovation is you see a problem, you attack it, you fail, you come back at another way and you fail again, and then you come back, and then the third time you solve it. So the answer's right there. The problem's right there. You just have to figure out how to solve it. And so then everyone says, oh, you gotta think outside the box. Well, no, 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 sometimes you just gotta see it, and it's perseverance. Now, Phil Knight says, oh, they're just shoes. Well, look at Nike. Could you imagine that's just shoes? Okay, just shoes, but look what you can do with shoes. You can have running shoes, you can have basketball shoes, you can have tennis shoes, and you start to get specialization, and then people buy three pairs of shoes, not just one. Now that's seeing the box. You know, you wonder in 50 years, will he be remembered as much for helping cure cancer as, as making tennis shoes or basketball shoes or wrestling shoes, all <laughs> the types of shoes. I would like to talk about CEDA because this was very exciting to hear about this in uh, the Cancer 101 talk, the presentation. Sadek Isner is the lead on, on CEDA. Can you tell us about the work that he's been doing? It's a very interesting background. Uh, incredible background as an engineer. And what I love about engineers is much as I've just discussed, it's about how do you solve a problem? Let's put together a, a timeline and deliverables and let's attack the problem and figure out bringing lots of different people and disciplines together to attack a problem. 
So he comes at this with an engineering background, but then a very personal story about cancer, and then understanding that this is where he can make his impact. But in addition, he also brings this view of it's a team that's going to attack and solve the problem, not just one lab, not just one approach. So what we've done with the early detection program is try to bring different disciplines together, work as a team, solve a big problem. Different disciplines, yes. There's an advisory board. Milestones are reviewed every six months. Sounds like a company, doesn't it? Well, I love the spirit of uh, cross-pollination between, as, uh, to use your own words, between experts in different disciplines. And that's, that, tell us about this building. I mean, what makes this building unique? Because you, you, you keep talking about this, you've got different experts, but they're, they're more accessible. Right. What, again, when you think about innovation and solving problems, we wanted to create a building where we emphasize the team and we emphasize collaborations. So we've made our offices smaller, we've made more open spaces, but we didn't make it all so open that nobody would want to be here. We made it enough privacy so that people want to be here in this building, enough interactive spaces, a kitchen where people can go get coffee and mingle. If you have to walk down the hall, you're going to bump into people and you're going to talk to them. We've tried to make it so that people interact in our building, because that's where that's it's where, a rarity, I, I understand, in scientific communities. It's, most of science is done by individuals, or has been traditionally... Academics. Yeah, it's one person working on a, one part of a problem and not talking to anybody. We've tried to get people out into the open talking about what they're working on and interacting. And we built a building that facilitates that. And what I love about coming to work here is when I walk around, I'll see people sitting on couches and talking. We intended that. I'll go up to our coffee bar and people are lounging around and talking. And we've got some absolutely fabulous speakers coming up, unlocking the cancer code using technology, data, and genetics. And then in the future, we've got even more, one in April on childhood cancers. In March, we've got careers in cancer. May is melanoma month, so we'll talk about skin cancers. Uh, we have another on immunotherapy. Toward the end of the year, we'll, we'll talk about our SMART treatment program. That's right. I'd like to go back in time just, just really quickly, uh, talk about your TEDx Portland presentation. Yes. With Jim Riswold. Jim Riswold, what, a, what an amazing person. Jim is a, a character, uh, a Wyden Kennedy advertising guy, um, and he's always been a little bit controversial and edgy. Uh, but you saved, you saved his life. Yes. As he refers to it, I'm the asshole who saved his life. <laughs> uh, but that's just Jim. And I've learned what Jim says that with affection. And what Jim has learned is that Sometimes the best way to, to manage a bully is to laugh at them. Yeah. And can't, what bigger bully is there than cancer? So if he can learn to laugh at it, uh, that's how he's managed it. And he certainly had his bouts with cancer. You hear a lot of testimonials. Do you, do you, yeah. Does it ever get to you? Uh, do I ever get tired of it? No. Is it emotional? Absolutely. But, I mean, you know, you have to keep a certain distance as, a, as an MD. Most of, my, most of the testimonials are positive. Yeah. Why would I get tired of that? Yeah. It is... So that feeds you. It, it does. And you realize... So, oh, 
there are people where I've answered an email late at night. And I have a wonderful, wonderful wife who unfortunately lost her mother when she was only five years old. And so she, she understands this is personal as well. So when somebody reaches out to me and I'm maybe ignoring her a little bit more than I should late at night and answering some email, and then five years later, somebody will write me another note and said, oh, five years ago, you helped me. I want to thank you. And I barely remember that. But it just, that feeds me and fuels me to keep doing that because there are people that need help. And if I can help them, I'm willing to do that. Devin Kelly, it's really great to meet you. Oh, the honor's mine. I really appreciate you having me. <laughs> this is really exciting. You're the executive director of Oregon Active. Can you tell us about the mission statement of Oregon Active? In a nutshell, we do uh, adventure therapy for people with disabilities or other life-challenging conditions. So we've worked everywhere from uh, veterans to children with cancer to autism. So, I mean, we all have life-challenging conditions. And so we really don't try to define ourselves by who we help, but... Uh, finding like-minded people that uh, you know, agree in what we're doing and so we can hopefully use adventure and learning new things and social connect connectedness to uh, bring people together. Well, that's how I, I discovered Oregon Active, by, by a social activity. <laughs> I was at yeah. Fashion Next. I wasn't even aware of this organization. I'd like to get the word out. It's a very important, uh, very important mission you have. Yeah, and, and you're, you're not the only one. Uh, we say that we're a small really? nonprofit that does big things. And uh, when we started it originally, I wanted to make sure that uh, very Portland-like, um, I'm a native, that we grew it organically. Um, that we inspire people to want to get involved versus, you know, say, you know, guilting them or, you know, pushing it down their throats, if you will, and marketing a whole ton. It's you typically probably heard about us through someone who uh, shared an experience with us. And that's, you know, I take I take a lot of pride in the fact that we are small, but that's what allows us to do the big things. The Pay It Forward project started with uh, a gentleman I'd met named Edgar Canales. He was a 14-year-old with a DIPG brain tumor. And if you know what that means, it's pretty much a death sentence. No one's ever survived that type of cancer. He's 14 years old. And one of the things we start with is, what's your passion? You know, what if you could have unlimited time, talent, and money, what would you do? And he was a Lakers fan, which, you know, that's, that's hard to stomach. Uh, being being from Portland, that's about the one team you can pick. That, uh, but uh, you know, it, it's about Edgar, and they'd never been to a basketball game. And when I first met Edgar, he was laying down, just finished chemo, could barely really move. And I told him, you know, I'll tell you what, like I'm gonna take you and your family to a Lakers game. And 
Kobe Bryant was his, was his hero, and so I didn't tell him any of this, but I reached out to a lot of my friends at Nike and different organizations to see if there's any way maybe we get something autographed or maybe he could meet him at the game. And next thing you know, he's sitting front courtside, you know, front row, literally behind Kobe Bryant. And I still didn't know. I mean, Kobe's shoe designer sent us shoes that didn't weren't even released yet. So each week I brought Edgar, his family jerseys with their names on it, getting ready for the game to build up. And I could just see his spirits lifting. And, you know, I was just hoping to maybe get down underneath the access to where the players would walk by as they're, you know, going to their, their bus or their plane and you know maybe get an autograph and so he went to the game they had no idea he was sitting courtside we brought the whole family and took a limo and it was great and i remember the the it's tough because and this is what's great about the blazers and portland is when you're asking you're saying hey can you help us meet the lakers <laughs> you know they're like no we can meet you know any of the blazers and you know and, and all of those things and and so they were they were great and so they got us access down and uh there was only supposed to be a couple, but they let the family down there, and it was the craziest thing, and I still to this day don't know how it happened, but we're walking downstairs, and there's Byron Scott, the coach of the Lakers, and he says, you must be Edgar. We've been waiting all game to meet you. And the lady from the Blazers looks at me like, who do you know? And I'm like, I don't know. So someone, I'm assuming it's through Nike since they were so generous uh, to get us the tickets and everything else, and next thing you know, Byron takes us back towards the locker room, and uh, the Blazers guy was like, I, this is pretty unprecedented. And one by one, every single Laker comes out and greets Edgar on a first-name basis and signs the jerseys, the family's jerseys. And I'll never forget, one of the players looks down at his shoes that we'd gotten him and was like, he goes, damn, bro, I can't even get those kicks yet. And the look on Edgar's face is like, and I said, well, that's because, you know, you don't know Edgar Strong. And that's what uh, his, his reputation was. And I'll never forget... Kobe fan or not, the moment when Kobe was last and he just had this this presence, this, you know, and he came through, he could not have been more humble, more giving in a very sincere way. It was unbelievable how much it meant to him to the fact he spent about 15 minutes with us and the family. And one of the images I'll never forget was Edgar's mom just starts bawling. She doesn't know how to react and she barely speaks English and Kobe picks her up gives her this bear hug and in Spanish says it's okay mama bear everything's gonna be okay Back in 2001, uh, I was playing in a beach volleyball tournament one day, and the next day I couldn't walk. And they didn't know why or how it happened or what happened, um, other than it was like an episode of The House, you know, that old TV show where yeah, there's so these medical that. mysteries. It was kind of a real-life situation of that. So I was able to experience, it's different, but it's the same emotions. And that's what I've learned with all the people we work with. It's not the severity of what you're going through. It's the, the emotions. That's the through line. And so... I can't even imagine. I mean, but you can because I'm sure there's something in your life. I mean, you don't get to, to be as successful and as giving as you are without something that, that just seemed impossible at the time, but looking back made you stronger. And, and I also know that there was a lot of, you know, 
kind of false hopes where I knew that if with Edgar, I'd seen him go from barely laying down to ecstatically going to the game. But I also knew like any adrenaline rush, like any you know, drug, if you will, there's going to be a come down. There's going to be now what? Now back to reality. And I was afraid of that. And so I was really trying to think, you know, we go, we meet Kobe, we do all this. It's this big moment. But now what? And that's he inspired what I now call the Pay It Forward project. And I said, I brought him aside and I said, you know, Edgar, you inspired a lot of people. Um, so much so that we had more resources than we even knew what to do with. And that was you and that was your story and your strength. And then watching you through that journey, I said, how would you like to join the Oregon Active team? And why don't you help us pick the next uh, kid to work with? And, and then you can give them the experience that we were able to give you. Because however much fun he had meeting Kobe, I can guarantee fails in comparison to the feeling I had watching it happen. And one thing we really believe in or in, in our organization is that if you want to help someone, it's not by giving them things, it's by putting them in a position to help someone else. And I wanted to give him that feeling. And honestly, I think his eyes lit up almost as much, if not more, than when he met Kobe, because now he had his purpose back, because that's what you lose. You know, you don't, right. the cancer, it might take your health, your physical, your energy. Uh, with me, it took my ability to move. Um, but that wasn't the hard part, because you deal with that. That's reality. The hard part's losing your purpose. Everyone has to take care of you. Everyone has to, whether it's brush your teeth or take you somewhere, you watch your family have to quit jobs, sell their prized possessions to pay for medical bills. After a while, like, you don't feel like you're an inspiration or a hero, even though people are telling you that because, oh, you've inspired me, but I didn't do anything. I just got sick. And so I wanted to give him that, that power of take what you're going through and use it as purpose to help someone else. And that's when he thrived. That's when Edgar Strong was created. And... And that was when I was like, wow, that's something that I think we're on to that's different is really, you know, giving them their passion or their wish, whatever that might be, is half of it. But the other half is them being able to use what they've been through to help another family because I can pretend all I want to understand what it's like to lose a child to cancer, but I can't. So when you bring two families together that have been through it, that's the real power, and that's where Brody, long way around to your question, uh, Edgar had heard about what Brody was going through. He's and a brave kid, Brody. Yeah. and Forgiving. And, and that's what was so crazy is I hadn't even really explained to Brody what this was all about. And when I met with him, I said, By you know. By the way, he's a really tall kid. He is. When I first met him, I, I could say I could look down. He, uh, he's pretty much as tall, and he's got a size 14 shoe. I was Holy telling you, know, show off, um, <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah, it's unbelievable that he's, he's, he's that young. And when I asked him, what's your passion, what's your dream? And he's, you know, had 24 angiograms, 13 brain surgeries. And he says, you know, I'm a lucky kid, Devin. I have everything I need. I'm fortunate. He's like, can I just grant someone else's wish? And that's when I knew like, wow, like you're, 12 years old right. and you're, and this you're coming was discussed. to that. So this yeah. was discussed on stage at Fashion Yeah, Night. and so I wanted to, you know, share that story and, you know, and it's the whole, you know, paying it forward. And I think at the end of the day, you know, tragedy, illness, whatever it is, it, it, it strips our purpose. And I think that's 
what we really need to get back. And just like our elderly, our grandparents, it's... Help us. Yeah, they, they knew they were going to get sick. They knew, I mean, they're 90 years old, 80 years old, hopefully. And, and so it's not a surprise that they're dealing with it, but that's not the hard part. The hard part is I'm no longer able to provide. I'm no longer able to help others. And that's what we try to do is... You know, you might be going through that, but you can use what you're going through, whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, you lost your legs in the war, whoever we've worked with, it's showing them that you can use what you've gone through to help others. And that's when I really see them shine. And it's, it, it changes your perspective on things. <laughs> yeah. And I found that through uh, what at the time I thought was the, the worst thing that ever happened to me. And if someone would have told me like, you know, Devin, you being paralyzed is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Had I been able to move, I probably would have wanted to punch him in the face. And I'm not a violent guy. But looking back, they're absolutely right. And, and I think I, that's what gives me that perspective is, you know, looking back, it did give me my purpose. And, and it changed my priorities. And so uh, it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of the trenches. And I wanted to take what I learned coming out of those trenches and help the other families. And I'll never forget... Uh, one of the most impactful moments was when Edgar's mom came up to me. We did a movie premiere for their families. So a red carpet premiere so Edgar could see the video of him at the Lakers game. And yeah. she came up to me oh, after. You got video too. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, she came up to me afterwards and said, uh, you gave us the one thing we didn't even know we needed. And I think that kind of sums up Oregon Active a little bit is we are different uh, because we're small, because we're you know, we like to to stay with the people we help. It's you know small but mighty. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that allows us to, you know, some of the bigger organizations, you know, they don't have the flexibility to be able to just make random phone calls all day long to to find these opportunities. And so I think we kind of fill those gaps. I mean, I think what what big organizations do is extremely important. And God bless, and thankfully they're there. But we try to sometimes fill the gaps that maybe the things that they want to, but they aren't able to provide. Well, I'll rewind a little bit. It was, and I use the word paralyzed because it's the only real adjective I can find. Um, I could physically move my body, but I couldn't move without excruciating pain. So in a, what took them weeks to find out was that I had a cerebral spinal fluid leak uh, spontaneously. So your brain has a fluid around it called a CSF fluid, along with your spine. And it's the most protective substance in the world. If they could reproduce it, it'd be in every helmet. Um, mine was leaking out of my nose and my ears. So as I could physically move my limbs, if I at any moment moved my head, elevated my head, shook my head, or just moved, rolled over, it literally felt like someone was taking a baseball bat and, you know, hitting me with it on the head so really just moving just any type of movement so I had to lay perfectly flat perfectly still almost oh for, for about oh a year God. so yeah and then the for a year yeah and the you know and they didn't know like that was you know at first the hard part was them not knowing what it was and then the second is if it was going to go away and they gave me a few options to how to treat it but none of the neurosurgeons would really sign off on any of them so really my option was wait it out and so the hard part was, if they would have told me, hey, you've got to do this for a year, now I can compartmentalize it, I can start you know, planning on it, but I didn't know if this was going to be a month, a year, a lifetime, 
Um, so and you're an active guy. You're yeah. a very in shape, active guy. It's possibly the worst thing. Yeah, it's it was my happened. everything, and it was yeah. you know it was just stripped from me on an idle Tuesday, and it it just it randomly you know happened, and so it's like the things we worry about every day are so trivial when that happens, and you know it doesn't make it easier, and it doesn't make me not worry about the trivial things now. <laughs> But it does put things into perspective. Well, like parking, trying to find parking to get here. Parking yeah, to yeah, get here. exactly. And then, you know, realizing that I should have left a little earlier. So it's, it's not that, you know, it, you know but the, the, the main difference is there's times, like all of us, like I don't want to go running. I really don't. But I get to think back and be like, but I can go running. So I will. Now, that doesn't mean I want to, but it puts a different perspective on, but it still takes you know, getting reminded. And that's working with kids like Brody and Edgar helped me remind because this was, you know, in 2001. So it's easy to get caught back up into that, oh, everything's good, everything's yeah, fine. Especially when you have a little bit of distance. Yeah. And so it's, you know, now it's kind of, you know, a lot of a great memory, if you will. But, you know, I also have to remember and that's, you know, where I get, I learn a lot more from Brody than I promise you he learns from me. Um, and he reminds me that, you know, just you have today use it you might not have tomorrow really what do you as learn? cliche you, as that is you, i mean I, I know it's a bit of a cliche but yeah. what do you learn from him the the power of taking the bad things that happen to you and using them to make others better you know i learned when i ask him what he wants he wants to help i learn that just by spending a little time with him by you know he's getting bullied you getting know bullied yeah and that he's really? to the point where he's had to been homeschooled and and that's horrible to think. And it's how could someone bully someone who's been through that? You know, and to the point where it's, you know, because he started getting attention. Because, you know, now because he's doing good things. He was one of the Dornbecker kids that got to design the Nike shoes. And they went for like $30,000 or maybe 50000 I can't remember. A, a crazy, a, they broke a record. And so now he's designing Nike gear for other, you know, patients for charity for the good. But kids get jealous. And it's almost like they don't understand what he's going through. They just see that, oh, wow, you're getting all this attention. And it's, it's sad. But just like starting your own business, just like being an entrepreneur, like the hard part's not the grind. It's not the work. You're passionate about it. The hard part's the hate. And it comes because you're doing things that are making a difference. And when you do that, people come out of the woodworks to, I don't know why they do it, but it... It's another challenge. It's one more challenge and to right. the point where, yeah, I mean, who would, Edgar got bullied. Edgar got bullied at school, got a literal, I know where you live, I'm going to, you know, like weird stuff. Like to make me realize, like, not that bullying didn't exist when I went to school, but I think part of the difference is, is when you bullied someone at school, you were face to face and you might get punched in the face. Yeah. Now you can hide behind a keyboard. And you can say all these things you want and not even realize the effect they're having on some of these kids. And so, um, you know, that also helps me learn that, you know, times are different and, you know, but the struggles are the same. By the way, don't worry about being late because everybody's late that does this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is Portland. This is what yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, everything's a bit slower. It's the, yeah. yeah, it's the, the passive aggressive Portland. So... Were you in your 20s when this happened? This yeah, I was 24 years old. 24? Yeah. And uh, did you have any support when you were down and out? I really did. And that's 
that's probably what got me through it. And that's one of the things that we really try to provide. And it was, you know, family and friends. Um, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time that I wanted to propose to. And on top of that, and, and I don't blame her one bit, but it didn't work out, you know, because she didn't know. And through those tough trials and tribulations, you know, it was, you know, my mom making me egg salad sandwiches every single day and helping me go to the bathroom and brush my teeth and shave and taking care of the bed sores and, you know, all those things. And, you know, and the friends coming by, but, but the part I didn't see coming and the part I look back and I think that some people, if you haven't been through that, don't understand is you can use all the logic in the world. I knew, I know my friends love me and my family loves me and I know they're doing it because they love me, but there's a guilt attached to it because you can't give anything back. What do I offer? And I felt guilty like that they felt guilty to have to come visit me month after month. And I'm that just, makes a lot of sense. and I'm like, I offer nothing. I know it's not fun. I would feel guilty. And, and so the more you get, the more, you know, organizations give you and hey, here's this, here's yeah, that. Right. You're like, well, how do I pay it back? And it's a guilt for the families too. And so that was, totally the, normal. that was the hardest part. And I've always been described as obnoxiously positive. And I found myself, and I used to think, I was like, gosh, you know, not to get dark on you, but like suicide, you know, always thought my whole life, like, how could someone do that? Like, and I hate to say this, like, what, how selfish, like, you're just, you know, I, 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 that just didn't compromise. And I remember laying in bed being like, I think I, I kind of want to end it. And I realized, like, I didn't want to end it because I couldn't walk or because of my pain. I didn't want to hear my mom cry anymore. I didn't want my friends to feel like they had to visit me. I wanted them to get on with their lives. And, you know, that... Like a burden. Yeah, and that was my kind of aha moment. And, and, the, and then the more you get and the more people give things to you, it only, you know, makes it worse. And I use the example, you know, let's say, you know, Greg, you probably have a best friend. And so much so you probably don't even exchange Christmas gifts, let's say. And then because you know each other, you know, you, you love each other and, you know, and, and then maybe you're having a hard year one year and your friend has a really great year and he knows there's something you've always wanted to do. He's like, you know what? You know, Greg always gives, he deserves this. I think I'm going to get him what he's always wanted. And he, he gives it to you and you know, He's your best friend. He's not giving it to you to be like, hey, I gave you something or I want something in return. But your first instinct tends to be, oh, no, I didn't get you anything. And the difference being is like you're an ability too. And so that was, you know, I say take that times it by 10,000. So you can't really apply logic because I knew my mom wasn't crying because she was so sad that she had to help me she was sad for my pain. So I think going through a lot of that is, is kind of what I try to offer with Brody. Like, Hey, I understand these emotions. Like, and so the way you can take away that guilt is to, to find your purpose, because that's really what gets taken away. It's not your mobility. It's not your legs. If you lose them, you know, one of our board members, Kevin Panel lost his legs in Iraq. And he says the same thing. Like if I could grow my legs back, I wouldn't. Um, yes, he's the program director. Yeah, and so he's, you know, he, he's inspired. He lost his legs in Iraq. Mm -hmm. A grenade ambush, and and he went through. And what I found is he went through the exact same emotions, like different. To me, I'm like, whoa, that is way worse than what I went through. But to him, it's not. It's like 
and that's what I've learned is it's not, we all have something. The emotions are the same and they're real for us all. So that through line is the same. And so that's what we try to do is regardless of what you're going through, uh, the emotions are the same. The same guilt arises. And uh, this uh, burn victim, Emily Longden, who inspired me, we got her to meet Bethany Hamilton. She always wanted to surf. And so we went down to Hawaii to meet Bethany Hamilton. How much, I mean, how severe was it, the burns? Uh, she was an infant, and it was 85% of her body. Um, she was cooked. Yeah. And she gave a speech in front of our uh, movie premiere. We always do a movie premiere after the experience. wasn't a pun, by the way. That was... Yeah, like, that was... Yeah, she was in a house fire. Oh, my um, God. Oh, my God. And she God. used this line that I'll never forget. Uh, and she, 85% I, of her body. Yeah. I think she was 16. She says, you know what? She's like, we all have scars. She's like, some of us... There, you get to see them on the outside. Some of them are on the inside. But we all have scars. And that was really hit home to like, you, you don't really know. We all are going through something. Depression's no different than being paralyzed. Your purpose is gone. So heartbroken. It's, uh, it's I, a recurring theme, purpose. You've got to find yeah, your purpose. And, and so it's... You know, and that's the, the benefit of going through terrible things is it allows you to find your purpose. Right, and, and you do that by adventure. Yeah. Can you tell us about these adventures? Yeah, so, I mean, it's everything we've, from skydiving to horseback riding to hiking to bungee jumping um, to, you know. I saw pictures of the bungee jumping. Yeah, it's, and I, I actually. I don't know if I'm brave enough. Yeah, so it's never say never. Um, and then I ended up, you know, working at a bungee jumping operation, which was, you know, funny. But it's. You know, I always say, you know, we take these risks not to escape life, but to prevent life from escaping us. And, you know, not everyone enjoys bungee jumping. So we, we try to find what it is, you know, what it is you're passionate about, what you've always wanted to do. Right, lots of birthday parties. Yep, we, we do birthday, you know, and we like to really just stay with the people we help. It's not, we want them to be involved throughout the, you know, we've, right. you know, we lost Edgar. Uh, he was supposed to make it about eight months and it was probably two and a half years. And he'd be celebrating, he celebrated his 18th birthday. Uh, well, that must have been tough. It was. And, you know, but what's great is his parents and his family still come up and help us on adventures. And that gives them their purpose. You know, like he went from hating coming up to chemo to like, now I get to go to Dornbecker and see all my friends. And I get to help other, you know, kids. And he's a legend up there because, you know, the chemo didn't change. His... Mindset changed. changed. And that's what we try to do. It's the, the little things you don't see coming. Like his mom said, the, the things you don't know you needed. My goodness, you're inspiring me. I'm inspired to be here. And it's know that someone even wants to hear my story is still mind-baffling to me. Well, it, it's a wonderful story. And uh, there's many ways to get involved by volunteering and even donating $50 a year. Yeah. Just join in becoming a yeah. member. And I even still feel bad so about that's it. that's pretty yeah. easy to do. It, it really is. And I, I just joke. pick and choose which events you want to get involved Yeah, with. and, you know, I've been through a, a long process through because it didn't start, Oregon Active didn't start as me wanting to start a nonprofit. It actually, I made a promise to myself that... Are you the founder? I am, yeah. And it started... Oh, did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew you were the executive director. Yeah, I didn't no, realize I, you founded it, the organization. And it wasn't even an organization at first. It was a promise I made to myself when I was in my dark times. Um, I realized, again, I've always been obnoxiously positive. And I realized when I was having my dark moments and ready to give up, it's like, this isn't me. 
because I was focused on what I lost. Like I just lost my, what I was going to be my fiance. I just lost my ability to, I lost everything. And I focused on what I lost and now I'm not going to have that family or that, you know, whatever it is you, you think you want at the time. And I started thinking, well, what would I do if, when I can walk again? And I made a list and, uh, it was 162 things and it was ridiculous things. It was if I had limited time, talent, and money, what would I do? You still have this list? Oh, yeah. Um, 162 things? Yeah, which you'd think would be easy. And it's funny, after 15, it's probably this. I bet you if you have 30 people make this list, the same 15 is going to be the first 15. The hard part was after that, it took weeks to come up with it. And there's things like be on the Oprah Winfrey show, catch the winning pass in the Super Bowl, repel out of a helicopter, random things. And it wasn't a bucket list, um, but when I looked at that list is what's this list telling me? And if someone hasn't gone through anything you know, horrible to you know, have the purpose smack you in the face, uh, I would say make that list. Um, but when I say unlimited time, talent, and money, that means there's no obstacle. And that's the hard part for your mind to like, well, catch a pass in the Super Bowl. Like you're 5'11", and you know, <laughs> You're 5'11". and you Rudy, uh, you know, playing from Yeah, and so Dame. you think, oh, well, I won't write that down. And then, but what I realized in the Oprah Winfrey show, I was like, well, that's random. But what I learned is, like, I didn't write the Oprah Winfrey show because nothing on my list said I want to be famous. Um, it said, I'm on the Oprah Winfrey show because I helped someone. And, and so I found the, the through line, the consistencies of what that list was telling me. And that's how I found my purpose. If you want to get involved, uh, probably the fastest way is to, I love direct communication, so Devin, D-E-V-I-N, at OregonActive.com. You can email me, you can go to our Instagram, OregonActive is our handle, and uh, Facebook, OregonActive, and www.OregonActive.com. I guarantee you once a month we're going to be doing a fun adventure we'd love to have you on, or activity, and you'll have the opportunity to directly impact the community and meet these people we're talking about some very very brave young people yep exactly so and we want to meet the brave people out there and i was able to meet you so i, I really appreciate it Devin kelly thank you so much no thank this you was, I, I appreciate it truly inspiring <laughs> no, hopefully i didn't babble on sometimes you have to tell me Devin broad strokes broad strokes Devin. so i can get a little excited <laughs> i love it thank you so much no thank you i really appreciate the opportunity all right all right Fantastic. Hopefully I you know, didn't. Holy cow. <laughs> you were a Some, and loaded. Sometimes I can go <laughs> off in many different directions. <laughs> Today's show was produced and edited by Gregory Day. That's me. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can reach me at greg at pdxpodcast.com. We'll be back very shortly. See you then.